Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. I'm here with David Craig, editor at Real Clear Defense. David, how are you doing today? Great. How are y'all doing? Good. Uh, we have a great guest today. We are speaking with John Gretton Willink, aka Jocko. Willink served as a Navy SEAL and rose to platoon commander. While serving in Iraq in 2006, Willink led Task Unit Bruiser during the violent Battle of Ramadi. Bruiser became the most highly decorated special operations unit of the Iraq War. Since retiring from the Navy, Jocko has built an entrepreneur's empire, forming a consulting firm, Echelon Front, with his fellow SEAL Leif Babin, a fitness company, MMA schools, published nonfiction books on leadership, and of course, records the very popular Jocko podcast. Most recently, he is the author of his first fiction book for adults, Final Spin. Jocko, welcome to Hot Wash. Hey, thanks for having me. So you've led a really multifaceted career. I'm sure I, I missed a few things even in that list. Uh, so I think the, the conversation might jump around a bit, and we have a lot of ground that we'd love to cover. Uh, David, who's a retired Marine and served in Iraq and Afghanistan, is also going to jump in here. Uh, but let's start with the most recent thing, Final Spin. It's it's a really interesting book. It's got a very sparse, almost poetic, really minimalist writing style. It's you know somewhere between Mamet and Elmore Leonard. It's it's not in an obvious way related to the subjects that most of your career has orbited around the military, uh, but it does feel like it touches on these themes that you constantly bring up of uh, ownership of actions, of responsibility, owning your mistakes, defining a sense of masculinity, of of purpose. Uh, tease the premise of the book for us and tell us what made you want to write it. Well, the premise of the book is there's two brothers. Um, one's 23, one's about 30. And the older brother has some, some intellectual disability. So he's probably got some mild form of autism. He's socially awkward and he's obsessed with doing laundry. So he loves laundry. He loves laundry machines. He loves washers and dryers. He loves uh, detergent and fabric softener. He has posters of those things hanging up in his room and he actually works in a laundromat and he's totally happy and loves his life working in the laundromat. The younger brother who is very smart and very street smart and handsome and charismatic and funny. And he's also made some bad choices in his life. So he has ended up working as a stock boy in a big box store. And as the story unfolds, it turns out that the owners of the laundromat are gonna sell the laundromat. And when the younger brother, whose name is Johnny, finds out about that, He's concerned that if the laundromat gets sold, his brother, his older brother won't have a job and therefore will not be able to be happy. So the younger brother decides he is going to buy the laundromat. And in order to get the money to buy the laundromat, he decides he is going to steal that money from the big box store where he works. He convinces his best, his best friend that this is a good plan and they go to execute the plan. But as we know um, from military operations, things don't always go as planned. And that's kind of as the story starts to go sideways. In talking about the SEAL teams, et cetera, you've, you've talked about in the past that there's this, uh, there's sometimes an element of uh, criminality in the type of person who's attracted to that that role of commando, the, those types of careers in the military. It, is, is Johnny, does Johnny have 
aspects of you at that age? Maybe like, is is this kind of a, a mirror universe where maybe you had made some worse decisions? What about Johnny's character and the decisions that he makes are related to where you found yourself at that age? Um, let me just say that it would have been a very bad situation if I had not joined the Navy. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's all kinds of things wrapped up with me, my, the friends I had when I was in high school and just sort of the path that I was on. And I was very lucky that I, I was very lucky that even from a young, young age, I knew I wanted to go in the military. I knew I wanted to be some kind of a commando. And as soon as I got in, it was a beautiful thing. I, I got to take all that, all that aggression, all that energy and focused on something positive. So in this particular case, if Johnny, the, the younger brother character, if Johnny would have joined the military, joined the Marine Corps, joined the army when he was 18 years old, he'd probably be a, you know, a Sergeant major right now somewhere. So talk about the experience of writing. it. I mean, uh, I think that anybody who might be casually familiar with you might not have expected that this is something that you would take on. I think anybody who's spent any time listening to you on your podcast or TED talks or anything like that understands what a Renaissance person you are. Uh, I <laughs> that, mean, might you, a, that might be a strong word, but okay. Well, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think you, you take on such a variety of different roles and, you know, you, you haven't been defined solely as, uh, you know, kind of the box that people might, might put somebody with your military career into, uh, talk, talk about the, the experience of writing the book. What did you learn from it? The experience of writing it was like writing all my other books. I have stuff in my head and I need to get those thoughts out of my head. And it's just a, it's just a manual labor of, of putting them into the, put them into the word processor, right? I mean, it's just that I already know what I'm going to write. I already know what I'm going to say. That's the same with all my books. There's no, I'm not sitting there restructuring the sentences 50 times. I'm not, you know, I've never, somebody asked me yesterday about writer's block. I've never had writer's block. Like, so for me, it's just mechanics, putting the, the story that's in my head, the characters in my head onto the piece of paper. Uh, that's what writing it was like for me. That's the same with all my books. I write a thousand words a day. It takes me about an hour a day. You look up in whatever, however many months, and you got a book. Um, go through it, edit it, you know, uh, make sure it's not grossly, grammatically wrong, <laughs> and then send it off. So from a writing perspective, nothing really different. I've written a bunch of kids' books too, and those are the same thing. I, I know what I'm gonna write, I know what the story is, and I just it just I just write it. The reactions so far it's been from people that I know. Um, although so the, I got, you know, everyone that I've given it to all my friends that read it before, I, before it came out, loved it. And then what was interesting was I got to, you know, the first review that came out from publishers weekly, which is sort of, uh, uh, one of the premier sort of trendsetters on, on books. And they gave me an incredibly uh, positive review. And I was actually surprised at that because normally they just crucify people, especially first time novelists. They gave me an incredibly positive review, com compared me to David Mamet, um, which was pretty, pretty cool. And then um, what was it Booklist? Booklist was the other big reviewing group. And they gave me an incredibly positive review and compared me to Steinbeck and uh, Edgar Allan Poe. So, so That's far, a pretty good I, company. Yeah. <laughs> couldn't be any happier. I'm super stoked. And, you know, we'll see, we'll see how it does. But as far as I know, it's the book that I wanted to write and it's how I want it to be. So I'm, I've already won. I'm good. I'm on to the next one. So you compare, a lot of these are drawn from your 
experience in the military and even before you joined, like the the lady you mentioned that worked at the Wendy's preparing the salad bar kind of relates to this brother that has the same sort of OCD but happy attitude towards washing machines. But as far yeah. as Johnny, he is a virtuous character, but there is life or death that he faces as a consequence of his actions. And that too has some cor- significant correlation to your time in the military, especially the Navy SEALs. Can you speak to that also? Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, the, the character of Johnny, who's ends up sort of being a criminal, but he is a good person with a good heart. And he's trying to do the right things for the right reasons. And, and that's really clear throughout the book, even when he gets himself in sticky situations where the easy way out might be to do something wrong. And he tries to do the right thing and it doesn't help him doesn't help his cause, but he's trying to do the right thing the whole time. And, and again, you know, back to your point about people that have criminal type minds wanting to go in the military. Well, there's a lot of people with criminal might criminal type minds that don't have that good heart and they don't come in the military. And if they do come in the military, then they end up not doing good things. Uh, but you know, just your, it's, it's pretty standard that people, um, you know, that maybe they don't always make the best decisions, but they're trying to do the right thing. And that's what Johnny is as far as, you know, dealing with death in the book. I'm, I mean, obviously just like you, you know, you were, you were in the Marine Corps. We've, we've seen a lot of death, more death than people our age should have seen. And so that's a topic that I'm unfortunately a little bit too familiar with, but I think that's why I'm able to write about it in, in a way that, that is authentic. How are you different than that 19 year old that enlisted? Did you come into the military with that combination of dangerous but disciplined that that mindset of or was that something that the military forged in you is it something that's grown over time what would you say to that 19 year old who who did make the decision to uh, to join the military yeah um you know this book is dedicated to a kid named Jeff Lang and Jeff Lang is a kid I grew up with and we were like best friends from probably first grade until around sixth or seventh grade. And he went down the path of kind of drugs and alcohol and all that stuff. And, and I didn't. And, and I was telling somebody the other day when we were in fifth grade, we actually had, we, had, we were in the same classroom all day long with Mr. Parker. And we sat next to each other and we caused trouble. You know, we were troublemakers. We were laughing when we shouldn't be laughing, talking, when we shouldn't be talking, moving when we shouldn't be moving. And he was just a little bit more rebellious than me. And so when Mr. Parker would say, Hey, you, you boys need to be quiet. I'd be quiet. And Jeff wouldn't. And so Jeff would get sent to the principal's office. And that was just those little decision points along the way that by the time I joined the Navy, when I was 18 years old, he was already down a path that he really couldn't recover from. So when I was 18 years old and and I joined the Navy, you ask, you know, what was I like? Well, I, I actually was, you know, I was into working out and this was in the, no, no, there weren't that many people into working out. You know, we, we, we worked out back then. There weren't a lot of people into that. Um, I didn't drink, I didn't do any drugs. I was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty clean on that respect. And so I, and I knew like what the limitations were. I, there was a limitation to my rebelliousness, although I was definitely rebellious. So when I joined the military, um, yeah, it was very, it was a beautiful thing for me because now all of a sudden I just got to take all that, all that energy that I had and put it in a positive place. But to answer your question, 
I looked around. I wanted to be a good SEAL. Once I got to the SEAL teams, I just wanted to be a good SEAL. I looked around. I saw, and it's not quite, it's not very, it wasn't very clearly defined. And it's still, there's some definite, some gray area of what a good SEAL actually is. There's, there's, there's some different good examples you can get of specific individual SEALs go, yep, I want to be like that guy, or you want to be like this guy. And they might be kind of different, but they're both considered good SEALs. And so as I grew up, I just kind of looked at the SEALs around me and kept looking to try and narrow down what the definition of a good SEAL was. And luckily for me along the way, I, I followed some people that, that were really good SEALs and good people and head in the right direction. And it worked out, it worked out good for me. I got some great examples. So I would say, and, 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 and that being said, as far as did I evolve? Yeah, I, I evolved. I, I continue to evolve. I still evolve. I still am narrowing down what a truly good seal is to this day. And I look at the, you know, my career and see a bunch of things where I could have gone better. I see that progression where I was, where my, my definition of what a good seal was and what I was trying to be and what the right thing to do. I saw that evolve and grow as I got older and I continued to learn more. It wasn't that I, wasn't that I figured it out. It's just that I was taught and I learned and I saw more. Is it kind of an archetype? Like you need, like every team needs somebody who's like an aggressive driver. Every team needs a, a communicator, a peacemaker, you know, everybody needs, every team needs like the guy who's going to step back and think about the big picture. The, you know, what, what are those, what are those roles? What are those types of seals that you think about? Yeah. I mean, you, you just rattled off some of them and it's just like any team and depending on the environment you're in, you know, there's some environments where a certain seal platoon would do great. And there's, you take that same exact seal platoon, you put them in a different environment and they're going to do n- not as good, maybe even bad. Um, I had seals that worked for me and when they worked for me, they were absolutely phenomenal. And when they worked for somebody else, they would get fired. Uh, and that's the way it is. You know, the, the personalities, uh, you know, get together and get along or sometimes they don't. So, you know, you can take any of those kind of stereotypical people characters in your head. Do you want to, do you want a really smart guy on your platoon? Yes, you do. Do you want somebody that's super aggressive? Yes, you do. Do you want somebody that's really cautious? Yes, you do. Do you want somebody um, that can really make things happen? Yes, you do. Do you want somebody that's going to press the pause button and make sure that things are happening right? Yes, you do. You want all these people in your platoon. And then most important, you want some leaders in there that can kind of take all those different inputs and, and figure out what the best decision on how we're going to move forward is. You know, special operations over the course of the war on terror and, and Afghanistan in the last two decades has been so stressed, so demand, so many demands put upon them. The pace of operations is so huge and the, and the size of, of special operations in general has, has grown. I have this question of, is that kind of training, that kind of elite level training, is it really scalable? Is Does the training filter the population to find people who are right for those jobs or, or, you know, can you take a larger and larger percentage of, of, you know, the, the regular population of, of military that's available to them and bring them up to that level? Or, you know, is it a combination of the, of the two? Like, did you feel like, it sounds so much like your personal experience was you went there and it was like a key in a lock. Like you found, the perfect situation for your personality, it it revealed what you had were bringing to the teams already. To what degree is that common, or in, to what degree does 
does the intensity of the training forge people into something different than they were when they showed up? Uh, I think it just gets rid of people that aren't that way for the most part. And it doesn't mean you end up with every filter. It's like you're panning for gold, basically filter. You're panning for gold. I mean, uh, you know, I, I got friends over in the SEAL community right now. The last, um, the last class that went through hell week, which was like a couple of weeks ago, they ended, you know, they started with like a couple hundred guys and they ended up with 14 or actually, I think it might've been 13, 13 people. And I was thinking about that. You have all these kids that enlist for six years. It's a six-year contract when you enlist for a BUDS contract. You go through the delayed entry program. You sign those contracts. You get in shape. You start to run and swim. You work out all the time. You join the Navy. You go to boot camp. It's a total pain. You know, you've got all your freedoms taken away. You're making basically no money. You're getting told what to do. You, you have no control over your own destiny. You go through all that. You show up, you show up to SEAL training. Now you're finally where you want to be. And, and this, this last class that went through, they had 42 people quit on the first day of first phase, 42 people that went through all that and got to the first day and said, you know what, this isn't for me. That training is freaking hard <laughs> and it gets rid of a lot of people. Where I thought you were going with that question is, can't you take other people and train them to do what SEALs do? And the, the answer is absolutely, uh, probably about 90, 90 plus percent of what SEALs do can be done by just about anybody. And there's the little chunk at the end that you're going to want those, you're going to want those guys that have been filtered out to the nth degree and they're going to come through. Right. I mean, I, I think that's the question is like, you know, if the training is so good, why is, why isn't everyone trained that way? Why isn't everyone trained to that level? And, you know, the obvious is expense and time, but uh, it also seems just as an outsider that, you know, not everyone's a screwdriver, not everyone's a hammer, you know, that some people in the military are best suited for specific roles. And, you know, the this everyone kind of has this romanticized vision of SEALs or, or special operations. You know, everybody w- wants to be a cowboy, but maybe not everybody should be a cowboy, you know. Uh, and, and you know, how, how the training reveals that in people's personalities. Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, I, <clears throat> I recently had a guy on my podcast, Ben Milligan, who was a SEAL, and he wrote a book. And it's a fantastic book, actually, called, uh, what's it called? By water beneath the walls. I have it here on my desk. And it's the history of the SEAL teams. And it just talks about the fact that it's, it is very strange when you think about the fact that, that one of the premier direct action forces in the U.S. military is, is from the Navy. That, that doesn't really make sense. I mean, we don't, we don't have any infantry in, in the Navy. You know, you would think right, you would take infantry right. and turn them into an elite strike force. <laughs> right, right, right. And right. instead, we've taken these random Navy guys and turned them into a strike force when you have the Marines and you have the Army who are infantry soldiers who have, you know, 90% of the prerequisite skills to get that job done. Why would you take people that have none of those skills and train them up? And it's a very strange evolution. And, and what it boils down to is you, you kind of got to read the, the book and the history, but every time an elite unit started to sort of surface in the Marine Corps or in the army, the, the regular infantry would kind of get rid of it. 
They didn't want these elite people. They, they, you know, and I, I, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure David, you remember this in the eighties and nineties. Hey, why isn't, why isn't the Marine Corps part of special operations? Why? Because the Marine Corps said, we don't need that. Every Marine is special. We don't, every Marine is elite. Right. right. And, and you know what? That is accurate. I mean, I love the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps is outstanding. It's a Marine Corps birthday too, obviously. So happy birthday, Marine Corps today. But every Marine, Marine is a rifleman. They have an incredible ability to fight. And so they looked at like, hey, why do we need a special? We all are special. So that's what kind of ate up the Marine Corps. The, the Army had various incidents along the way. They had some tragic incidents where where these kind of commando units were fought and and had bad situations unfold and they would just disband them. And that was that. And and yet there was still always a need for a commando unit, especially a maritime commando unit. And the ones that would answer the call over and over again was these random dudes from the Navy. And it is very strange, but that's the way it worked out. And the Rangers is the odd situation, too, because they if you go to the Rangers, you don't stay in the Rangers. Uh, and the, but if you go if you leave and then come back, you have to go through the indoc all over again. It's really bizarre. And then for the Marine Corps with Marsoc, the Marine Corps fought that tooth and nail too. Uh, and the biggest reason, I guess, is because they would they would lose control over them. Yep. It would become part of JSOC, uh, which I, the Navy SEALs actually are part of as well which which is interesting but yeah well part of socom and and yeah that's they, they they definitely didn't want to give that up so it's an interesting little uh area where everyone's trying to protect what they've got what do you what do you make of some of the criticisms that navy seal leadership has gotten like i read that book alpha one of the problems i had with it was you know it was all evidence taken from the prosecution it seemed like and then for people that aren't familiar with the military or the SEALs will misinterpret some of the things in the book, like how Gallagher went through the kill house. You know, I think he was burned out, so he made a mockery of it and would just shot everything. Another thing, I, the impression I got was when I did my battalion mid team in Fallujah, even during training and then when we got there, there was guys on my team that just are not cut out for combat. And you just have to figure out how to deal with it. And that's sort of the impression I got of these guys that were complaining about Gallagher. Granted, he, I think he was probably a little over the top. He was burned out. Uh, but the way they reacted to some of the things he did just reminded me of some of the guys on my team that weren't cut out for combat. You know, like there's one guy that said, if any of you guys get blown up and you're missing half your abdomen, I'm just going to throw quick clot on you. I'm not going to go through all these medical procedures <laughs> and you know we didn't take well to that but what's your thoughts on some of the i think a lot of the criticism is kind of unfair unfounded and maybe we do need to look at it but you're much better placed than i am to to critique some of the criticisms the seals have gotten of late yeah i mean i i actually haven't read uh haven't read the book that you're referring to um and and look, are our seals perfect? No, we're not perfect. We, do we make mistakes? Yes, we do. Um, when seals make mistakes, is it the fault of the leadership? Yes, it is. There's if there's a leadership problem in a platoon or at a seal team. Th then you'll see. That's when you see problems happen. When you have good leadership, you won't see those problems. So when you see problems, it's a leadership problem. And so I think when there's criticism against leadership, yeah, um, it's 
it's founded. And even, you know, you get this stuff that comes to the press. It's like, how did it get to the press? That's a leadership problem, um, you know, because it wasn't handled properly. And, and that's a problem. So, um, I, like I said, I haven't read the book that you're referring to, but, uh, and, and, you know, look, the, the SEAL leadership came out and said, Hey, we have, we have issues. So there you go. They're, they're trying to take ownership of those problems so they can square themselves away. So, uh, we're recording this on November 10th, tomorrow's veterans day. Uh, what do you see as the biggest challenge for veterans leaving service and transitioning to civilian life, especially from, you know, high tempo jobs, like, like special operations? Uh, the biggest problem that veterans have from my perspective, when they leave is they don't, they, they don't have a mission anymore. So you're in the military, you have a mission, you have a focus, you have a bunch of people around you that have the same mission and the same focus. And then all of a sudden you get out of the military and the next day you don't have a mission anymore. And that's where I think guys run into trouble. Um, and not only do you not have a mission anymore, but you don't have any other people that you're hanging around with, with that same mission focus. So what I tell veterans all the time, when you get out of the military, you need to find a new mission. And I don't care what that mission is, whether it's being a better dad or a great dad, or whether it's running a triathlon or learning jujitsu or starting a business or joining a company and being the best employee, you need to find a new mission and focus on that. It's when people don't have a mission that they start to go down the, the path of least resistance. And usually that's going to end up in a big negative way. You, you take on leadership as a big, you know, most of your other books, in fact, have been on leadership. Why has that been a driving force and a topic for you? I mean, on your podcast as well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty persistent theme. And I think sometimes people don't realize it. Like is Sebastian Younger's latest book, Freedom, he, he talks about leadership. And I don't remember if he uses the precise term leadership, but he says, you know, leaders that haven't sacrificed are merely opportunists which I thought was really interesting. Can you elaborate on your perspective on leadership and why you think it's such an important topic? Well, I think leadership is the most important topic and it's what I've, yeah, I wrote my first three books. We're all about leadership. My podcast is about leadership all the time. Leadership's the most important thing on the battlefield. It's the most important thing in business. It's the most important thing in life. So, you know, my last my last few years in the SEAL teams, I ran the training for the West Coast SEAL teams, and that was the advanced training, the tactical training. And so I got to be in this position where I was in the the I was in what I think was probably the best leadership laboratory that has ever existed in the world. Um, and I've been and now I've worked with various universities, Ivy League universities. Like I've seen a lot of leadership training, and I don't think there's any leadership training that's better than the leadership training that I got to run when I was in charge of the West Coast SEAL training. So we would take these SEAL platoons and put them out on training missions, night after night, after night, after night, a platoon, another platoon, another platoon, another platoon, another platoon, and put them in the exact same scenarios and watch whether that platoon succeeds or fails. And the bottom line, 100%, if the platoon was going to succeed, it was going to be because of good leadership. If the platoon failed, it was because of bad leadership. It didn't even necessarily mean that they had a quote, good seal platoon leader because they might not, they might have a terrible platoon commander, 
but their platoon chief is awesome. It might even be a bad platoon leader and a weak platoon chief, but they got an incredible, incredible leading petty officer, or they got two or three E5s in there that are pipe hitters that step up and make things happen. And that platoon will win all the time. Now, if you have really good E5s, but then you have an arrogant platoon commander who thinks he knows everything and doesn't listen, it's a disaster. So what I saw over and over again, and I saw this in combat, and, and then I saw it in the tra on the training uh, compound as well, is the only thing, the only difference between success and failure is leadership on, on a team. And I, I, I know that 100%, 100, 100, never did a platoon fail a training block because they didn't have good SEALs because they had, or because they had a bad set of new guys or because they had um, whatever, bad equipment or anything else. The only reason they would fail a training block is because of the leadership, they lack leadership. So as I learned that and, and realized, you know, I realized very quickly that I was responsible for teaching these guys how to lead. And I started to teach them how to lead immediately. I wrote down the four laws of combat, which are the four laws of combat in the first book that I wrote, Extreme Ownership, Cover, Move, Simple, Prioritize, and Execute, Decentralized Command. That's the exact same thing that I teach to civilian corporations right now, uh, businesses, teams everywhere. That's what we teach, the exact same thing that I taught those SEAL platoons so that they could win. So I'm, I'm totally obsessed with leadership. I, I, I talk about it all the time. I mean, I have thousands of hours of me talking about leadership and uh, three books about it right now, and I got, I'm working on another one. So yes, I'm into leadership. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was the in talking to friends, uh, knowing that you were coming on again and again. That was that was the theme that I heard. People who served in the military, who are now in government service. You know, uh, one guy who's at uh, Homeland. He talked about how you came into the presentation to DHS and just what a huge impact it made on his leadership style uh, and ha leading with a light touch and allowing people to fail, allowing people to have some ownership over the decisions that they make. And that it just really, if people have this idea of, you know, being uber aggressive as a, as a leader is somehow going to, you know, squeeze productivity out of, out of your folks, it's, you know, it's the opposite. Those ideas of ownership, of responsibility, of empowering people, uh, again and again was what came through for him. And he, he you know, he made a huge impact on him. And I, <clears throat> I heard the same thing from a, a lot of other people. Yeah. I think that's, um, <clears throat> I, I, that's, that's one of those things that we have to overcome in the military. Everyone thinks that military leadership is, you know, yelling at people and screaming and barking orders. And although there are leaders like that in the military and you can get away with it in the military more than you can in the civilian sector. And the reason is because in the military, you're only in charge of something for two years. And then, then you just are going to move on and people, just, <laughs> they'll, just, they'll just hold their breath for two years until you're gone. They don't really care. And then they'll get a, be a better officer in there to run things. Uh, but yeah, I, I talk about it all the time, you know, the, the, the ideal for me as a leader is I don't say anything. I don't have to say anything. I, I would go on missions in Iraq where the only thing I would say would be execute, execute, execute. I didn't have to say another word. And the containment would get set by the, by the external security team. The breach would get, get blown up by the breach set and blown up by the breach team. The assault team would clear the place. The, the SSE people would do their job. They'd marshal up the bad guys. They'd some, the, the mobility guys would rearrange the vehicles for the extract they would, the assault team would break out of the building. We'd all load back up and I wouldn't say anything. Wouldn't say anything. That's good leadership. Good leadership isn't me out there saying, hey, you do this and you do that. No, I don't want to do that. And, and I want to lead to, to your point. You said light touch. I tell people I want to lead with a minimum force required. 
If I can just, if I don't have to say anything, that's ideal. If I might have to look at one of my guys and give him a head nod, meaning like, Hey, you see that area over there, there's no security. He sees me do that. Boom. He knows what I'm talking about. That's the next level worst case scenario, or you know, then it escalates from there. Maybe I gotta say, Hey, pick up security over there. Maybe, gotta, Hey, we need security over in that building. Cause there's an enemy threat. Maybe worst case scenario, I got to go do it myself. Right. That's like the, the most hands-on leadership is I got to go do it myself. I don't want that. Right. I want to be at the other end of the spectrum where I don't have to do anything. And what that allows me to do is instead of looking down and in at my team, I can now look up and out and see what the threats are and talk about where the friendly forces are and make sure we're deconflicted and start thinking about other follow-on operations. So that's what I should be doing as a leader, not looking down and in and directing my team. And it, it's a combat's probably the worst time to be yelling. I learned when I was in Fallujah, I mean, you got to be if you start yelling, I mean, uh, and you're in a firefight, you're going to throw everyone off from what their core responsibilities and mission is, in my opinion. I, and I noticed that firsthand. <laughs> we had a guy on my team that would, he actually would never go out. But one time we got blown up, <clears throat> he starts yelling. And the reason we didn't run over the ID was the fact that on this occasion, I was driving, but uh, and it had rained, so it's muddy, and we knew that they weren't bearing the IDs under asphalt at the time. He kept he yelled at me to push, like speed it up, and I thought, you know what, I'm not going to fight with him. I'm just going to ignore him and just keep doing what I did that prevented us from riding over this ID that would have killed us if had we done that. And I just yeah. kept going slow. Uh, and I think there's that term that we learn: slow is fast. I think it might have come from the seals originally. Yeah, and it seems the slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Yeah. It yeah, seems like a if it's an odd term, but once you understand it, I mean it's incredibly valuable because you just had in your mind that these Iraqis aren't a very good shot. If you just take your time, sight in, you nine times out of ten, you've got the advantage of the situation, you know. Yep, certainly. And, those are all those are all great lessons. And and you know, we, do you have to yell when you're in a machine gun fight so that people can hear you? Yes, you do. But does that mean you're losing your temper and going crazy and letting your emotions make decisions? No, it just means you're amping up your volume so people can hear you. And right, that's one of the best things about the SEAL teams. We 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 don't do a lot of things well, but one thing we do very well is pass the word. You get you get taught from day one of SEAL training that when somebody yells at you. You, you hear what they say, you yell it back to them, and then you yell it to the next guy so that the whole team gets the word very quickly. And that's one of the most powerful tools in the, in the SEAL teams is just the ability to communicate with each other and pass the word. And you don't realize how important it is until you go into organizations or teams where they don't communicate well. And I think the trigger pullers are the ones that really kind of learn leadership the best. In fact, I had a guy towards the end of my career that formerly ran covert ops, took on a new role. He had called me to arrange for him to go visit IOC on Quantico, the infantry officers course. And what I realized towards the end of my career, SWOs in the Navy, uh, infantry officers in the Army and Marine Corps, and then squadron, uh, you know, fighter pilots in the Air Force that become squadron commanders, you know, they have that trigger pulling time, but then they also have that leadership time where they have to run an entire battalion or squadron that has immense amount of responsibility added to it those guys seem to me like they came out as the best leaders and probably why this guy wanted to visit the ioc course i think does that factor into any of your thoughts on leadership as well 
Yeah, I mean, look, does it, the, it's great in the army, you know, when, when I used to tell my guys, when you're talking to a battalion commander in the army, especially in, you know, 2008, 2010, that guy's been a platoon commander in the army. He's been a company commander. He's been a company XO. He's been a battalion XO. This guy's probably deployed five times to Iraq and Afghanistan. This guy knows what he's doing. And, and so, yeah, I think that that method of advancement is outstanding. Um, you know, does that mean every officer in the Marine Corps in the army that's been a battalion commander is squared away? Nope, absolutely not. Because <laughs> that's, there's also ways to game the system and get through and I've been doing a whole series of podcasts on a book called the on the psychology of military incompetence. And there's a whole, there's, there's a reason why people, certain types of people that aren't fit to be good leaders join the military and then advance through the military in some cases, even though they're not really suited to be good leaders. But if you're a yes man and you can play the game and you're, you, you don't take any risks your career can look great on paper and you can get advanced. And that does happen. Uh, but like you said, most of the time, if you've been through that, that crucible of command over and over again, you're going to end up with some, some squared away guys for sure. So is there part of the military training metaphor that has not worked when talking to people in, uh, civilian professions is, is there, is there something that you've had to readjust or, or, or rethink in terms of your leadership background that just doesn't work in civilian context? Nope. <laughs> oh, you know, so occasionally, like in the beginning, people would say, well, you know, in the military, if in the SEAL teams, if someone's not doing a good job, you can just get rid of them. And in the, and in the, in the civilian sector, we can't just fire somebody. And what's funny is I actually thought the opposite. When I was in the military, I said, you know, it must be pretty easy to be a civilian leader because if someone's not doing what you tell them, you just fire them. You don't have to keep them because in the, field, <laughs> in the military, as you guys know, you can't just fire someone. You you have to go through the same, it's the equivalent paperwork drills, it's HR, it's counseling, it's the exact same thing. And just like in the just like in the civilian sector, if there's someone that's not doing their job correctly and you go to HR and you follow the procedures, you can get rid of them, just like in the SEAL teams. If you have someone that's not doing their job and you counsel them and you coach them and you mentor them and they still can't do their job, you can get rid of them. It's the exact same equivalent. So the idea that you can just fire someone that's not doing what you want them to do, it's 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 false. And, uh, it, and that's the same with everything. So are there little differences between the civilian business and the military? There's the same differences between one SEAL platoon and another SEAL platoon and, and the SEAL team versus a Marine Corps battalion versus an army battalion. There's just differences in personalities, but there's no, the, the leadership is leadership, whether, whether it's on the battlefield or it's in business or it's in life. So fitness, MMA, BJJ are big part of your personal and your, uh, professional life. So I started, I started jujitsu for the first time. I was on my first deployment. It was like 1992 or 1993. There was a master chief that had trained jujitsu with the Gracie's in their garage in Torrance, California. He was like a high level white belt. Right. And his name was master chief Steve Bailey. Awesome guy. He introduced me and a few other guys to jujitsu. That's when I started training. I got really serious about it in late 1995. And that's when I started training, you know, twice a day, every day and competing and all that stuff. And I've been doing it ever since. So what is it about jujitsu that ties into these other big themes in your life? Uh, it, it seems like it's, it's almost a, a metaphor for all of these other issues that you've been dealing with. Never mind, almost a metaphor. It is a metaphor. And, and I'm very <laughs> lucky that I started training jujitsu because 
jujitsu was the, was the connective tissue that started to allow me to see how all these things were related. And then once I saw how they were related, I utilized the knowledge from one to enhance my knowledge and capability in the other. So everything you learn in jujitsu is applicable to leadership and it's applicable to combat and it's applicable to business. So um, for instance, when you're in combat and the enemy has a, has a, a, a hardened position, you don't go attack that hardened position directly. You'll get killed. Instead, you maybe distract them a little bit and you move around to their flank and you take them out from a different angle. In jujitsu, if you want to break someone's arm, you don't grab their arm. In fact, you attack their neck. And as they move to defend their neck, their arm becomes exposed and then you take their arm and break it. If I'm dealing with John here and you've got a big ego, I don't attack your ego. I don't say to you, you got a big ego, John, that's what's driving this decision. I don't say that to you because then you're going to defend it even harder. Instead, I find a way to come around from a different angle and maybe make you feel good about your idea and, and get you to let your guard down a little bit and then move forward. Business, same thing. I'm not going to direct assault a competitor where now they can they can defend and attack my position. Instead, I'm going to set up a situation where I have the advantage. So that's one example of the the multitude of examples of how all these different aspects of life are 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 very similar. And I was very lucky to to be able to start training jujitsu when I did and then started to see those connections between all these things. Right. Being comfortable, being uncomfortable, being in positions where you're stressed, but not letting that change the tempo of your your decision and planning out two steps, three steps, four steps ahead, being aggressive, but but savvy about it. 100%. Yep. That li- the list goes on forever. <laughs> did you see that video of the Marine in Yuma take down the robber at that gas station? Yeah, I did. That was awesome. <laughs> the, the, the thing that gets overlooked, though, I think, is the fact that he was patient something that you learn in jujitsu as well. He was assessing the situation, just waited to see what the guy was doing. Notice the gun wasn't pointed directly at him before he made his move. Uh, that was, that was really interesting. Yeah. Of course. Outstanding. So was there a time uh, or an experience in, in jujitsu where you were really pushed, where your, your ego was challenged, where you were feeling like, not necessarily in control of being in control. Uh, I mean, yeah, let's, uh, when you do jujitsu, you get submitted, you tap out, you get beat every single day, multiple times a day. So, um, yeah. Is it humbling? It's, it's one of the most humbling. When I started jujitsu, you know, I roll in there, I'm 20, whatever, 20 years old. And master chief Bailey is this, you know, freaking old man with gray hair. He must've been at least probably one of the oldest people I'd ever seen in my life. He probably was at least you know, 39 years old or something. And I'm thinking, what's this old man going to be able to do to me? And he submitted me as many times as he wanted to. So have I ever been humbled by jujitsu every single day? So, I mean, what's your advice to people who struggle with letting go of that ego, who struggle with uh, being challenged in that way? Well, that's one of the good things about jujitsu is is you get humbled every day and you learn to realize that, oh, I don't know everything. And there's people that are better at me. And when I was in the SEAL teams, I realized, oh yeah, there's people that are better at me at everything. There's people that are better shots than me. There's people that are stronger than me, faster than me, smarter than me. 
okay, so what am I going to do? Am I going to oppose their ideas because I'm scared of them? Or am I going to try and listen to what they have to say and learn what they have to teach? That's my attitude. So yeah, if you want to, you know, there's, there's certain people that when they try jujitsu for the first time and they get submitted and they get choked by someone that's half their size and, and they say, okay, I don't like that. So in order to not let that happen again, I'm just never going to get on these jujitsu mats again. And they have to just, they just have to live with that. But then other people say, oh, I don't like the way that felt. So I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that that doesn't happen again, which means I'm going to start training as much as I can. So I prefer that attitude and it's going to end up better for the person that actually engages and tries to learn and is humble enough to learn. Right. Right. Sometimes you see that reaction where people end up laughing after and they're it's how did I get here? How did, how did I end up getting thrown? How did I end up getting choked out? And it's that person that represents that mindset of, wow, that is not a situation that I was in control of. I want to learn more about that. I want to go back into that situation. I want to be, I want to be uncomfortable so that I can, so that I can become something different, so that I can train, so I can grow. David, uh, let's. Uh, we should probably start to wrap this up. Uh, do you have a final question for Jocko here? I just really enjoyed the book. It was. It's a nice that you kind of took it in a different direction. Um, I guess the final question would be: What were you trying to get across with this book? Even though it's a fictional book, uh, there's many things I can think of that relate, like to your career, but also for many that decide to join the military as well. Yeah. For me, some of the underlying themes and you're right, there's a bunch of them in there and I'm sure a lot of them stood out to you, David, since you, you know, you have a similar background to me, but um, just number one, how to treat other people and, and how to be, how to be empathetic to other people and understand what they're going through. Uh, another one was just finding a pathway to happiness and what does happiness actually mean and the meaning of sacrifice. And then finally, for me, this is kind of, where it ties in very directly to what I talk about all the time through leadership. And that is human nature and understanding human nature. And the better you understand human nature, the better you're able to interact with other people, which means the better you're able to lead. So that was another point of the book was just trying to take human beings, put them in these challenging scenarios so that we can garner a better understanding of human nature. So last question, Uh, you have very successful businesses. You've been in the military, you've done writing, you have a huge following on with your podcast and uh, people who seek you out for these the training. Uh, have you ever thought about going into politics? I certainly hope not. I don't. I don't want to be a politician. I don't like politics. Uh, I think it's nasty, and I don't think I have the stomach for it. And I hope it doesn't get to a point in this country where where it seems like I need to go do that. I certainly hope it doesn't. It would have to be really, really really bad. And I've said that I've given that answer before. And and occasionally people will, you know, hit me up on social media and say, is it bad enough yet? How about now? How about now? How about now? And uh, I've, I've got an answer for that as well, which is, you know, you're, you're hitting me up on social media, which means you're out there with an iPhone and we have internet. And that means pretty much our, our, our nation is alive and moving forward. If we have power and internet and iPhones, we're doing okay. So as long as we have those things, I hope I, I that that to me is my meter that I'm not going to be in politicians. I'll leave it to somebody else. Well, on that note, uh, we will end it there for today. Uh, we could easily talk for three hours like you do on your podcast. Uh, but I think that 
I just want to recommend to everybody the new book is Final Spin. Uh, you should check it out. Please come back and talk to us again. Jocko, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And uh, David, thanks for your service. Semper Fi. Happy birthday, Marine Corps. Talk to you guys later. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. All right. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. And of course, be sure to check out realcleardefense.com for the latest news and opinion on military, defense, and national security issues that matter. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For David Craig and everyone here at Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen.